This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. And today I am so, so excited to talk to Dr. Amy L. Stone about their new book, Queer Carnival, Festivals, and Mardi Gras in the South, published by NYU Press in 2022. And just some context for the other folks listening to this, I am so, so delighted to do this interview today because in 2014, when I was starting up my own project on Mobile's Mardi Gras, I contacted Dr. Stone and they were so generous in sharing with me some resources. We talked about our projects. So I've been waiting for this book since uh, 2014, but let's get to it. Queer Carnival reveals the importance of citywide celebrations like Mardi Gras and Fiesta for LGBTQIA plus communities in the U.S. South. Drawing on five years of research and over 100 days at LGBTQIA plus events in cities such as San Antonio, Santa Fe, Baton Rouge, and Mobile, Stone gives readers a front row seat to festivals, carnivals, and Mardi Gras celebrations, vividly bringing these queer cultural spaces and the people that create and participate in them to life. Stone shows how these events serve a larger fundamental purpose, helping LGBTQIA plus people to cultivate a sense of belonging in cities that may be otherwise hostile. Dr. Amy L. Stone is professor of sociology and anthropology at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. They are the author of several other books, including Gay Rights at the Ballot Box, Out of the Closet, Into the Archives, Researching Sexual Histories, and Corneation, San Antonio's Outrageous Fiesta Tradition. Amy, welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, finally. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So I always start with this question because it's something I'm really curious and I love to hear about it. Tell me your book's origin story. Okay, so when I started working as a professor at Trinity University in San Antonio, I was writing this very depressing book, honestly, about anti-gay ballot measures. So like these citywide and statewide votes on um, LGBTQ rights. And so most of the time, like these ballot measures, gay rights were lost. There was a popular vote that would like erase an existing law. So I read a lot of like anti-gay and anti-transgender literature for it. It was a real important book to write, but in the middle of it, I was just like slogging through it, to be honest. And I had just moved to San Antonio. Um, I had gone to like maybe one or two Fiesta San Antonio events, um, like a parade or something, but I didn't have any sense of like how big this festival was every April. One of my coworkers, like a week before Fiesta started, said, you know, what you should really do is you should take a break and you should go to Corneation which is this like very gay show during Fiesta San Antonio. Um, And so like the day before the show or one of the nights of the show, I just like randomly got a one person ticket 
you know, which I didn't know yet that that would be actually a really hard ticket to get. That the tickets are very coveted, like they sell out very fast. They're like people wait in line for hours to get them. I just happened to get this like one ticket. And so I went to the show and I had no idea what I was walking into, like absolutely no idea. And I sat down in this huge theater. I mean, it was like, it has two balconies. <laughs> like it's huge. And it was full of hundreds and hundreds of people. People of like all different ages and like um, kind of race and ethnic backgrounds and, you know, sexual orientations. It seemed like the couple next to me seemed like this like super straight Republican, like a suburban couple who said, oh, we only come into the city for like this show. So when it started, they announced there was this like flamingly gay Masters of Ceremony. And then they announced that the King Anchovy that year was Cheryl Scully who was the city manager. Like, she's like this really important person in the city. And she comes out in this, like, skin-tight, red, sparkly bodysuit, stiletto boots, a wig, and this, like, big old cape. And different members of city council are, like, dancing behind her. And I thought, like, what am I watching? <laughs> like, what is going on here? I was just so struck by it. I was holding the program, and I just started, like, taking notes in it of just things I found interesting. And the people next to me said, oh yeah, this has been going on for like a really, really long time. And they gave me a history that was like, wasn't quite accurate. They're like, oh, it started in gay bars here and then it became so popular. But very quickly I found out that it, it started in the 1950s. Like this was a show that had been going on for almost 50 years at that point. And I just thought this could be like super fun to study this little show. And I thought it would be a really fun, like, little weekend, little, you know, summer project, maybe. Like, I would go and, like, just do a tiny bit of research on the history of it and and write a little article or, like, a magazine article or something. And almost immediately it turned into just, you know, an obsession, this particular show. Um, there were so many people to talk to about it. And there were, like, hundreds of hours of video footage of it out there and... I tracked down people who were involved in the 50s and 60s, which was a real feat. You know, I was really committed to talking to them before they passed away. Um, found old home movie footage from the 60s. It was just so much fun. And as I was starting to kind of write about it and think about it, I realized that the whole festival had some really interesting stuff around LGBTQ visibility and culture. And I also started to wonder about other festivals. So I wrote a grant to just do a little like pilot preliminary research and to look at another kind of fiesta celebration, uh, Fiesta de Santa Fe, which is like much more religious. And what went along with that is that several people told me, oh, you should study Mardi Gras. And I didn't even know what Mardi Gras was, to be honest. I thought it was just like New Orleans, French Quarter, like boobs for beads kind of stuff. Um, and it never occurred to me that I would find it so interesting. But the more I read, the more I thought, oh, this might be a really interesting place to think about LGBTQ visibility and involvement in the city. And it turned into a four-city project, essentially. Uh, to get folks a bit more situated, could you give us just a brief introduction of the places and celebrations that your book covers here? Also, I'm also curious to know how and why did you decide to focus on these specific celebrations and cities? So I was very interested in Fiesta as a kind of celebration that's common in the Southwest. 
So it's common in, uh, particularly in New Mexico, where there's like a lot of fiesta celebrations. There's different kinds of like historical pageantry. There's usually some sort of historical story of like why the festival is happening the way it is. Uh, like Fiesta de Santa Fe is all about um, sort of the conquest of Santa Fe by the conquistadors. So I was very interested in it as like a very southwestern kind of festival, as opposed to just looking at like the Peach Festival or or whatever, because it was sort of about history in the region. And these are also large citywide festivals that um, were very uh, connected to the placemaking of the city. So there's some tourism literature that describes San Antonio as the Fiesta City, for example. And Fiesta de Santa Fe is kind of like central to particularly like like Hispanic cultural traditions in Santa Fe. So I thought, okay, these are two really interesting cities that study Fiesta and or that have a Fiesta and that they have really different approaches and that one is much more religious and traditional than the other. Like Fiesta San Antonio is very diffuse. It has like tons and tons and tons of events, you know, and there's not as much central coordination of them. And so I was very interested in both like this is a kind of regional celebration and also like how it could have, I was really curious of it, if it being more traditional and more kind of controlled would mean something for LGBTQ involvement. I kind of took the same approach for Mardi Gras in the Gulf South. I stayed away from New Orleans. Like New Orleans is like the place where like everything about Mardi Gras is written. Um, there's only recently been a book about gay Mardi Gras. Um, and it came out as I was doing my research. So I was really interested in some of the other cities. And so I kind of looked at each of them and kind of looked at what kinds of, you know, kind of how their Mardi Gras was structured. And Mobile came up right away as this kind of traditional, like historical, kind of a little bit old school way of doing Mardi Gras that like was really, um, certain traditions were very, very important. And then I was either going to do, I think, um, Baton Rouge or Lafayette. Um, I ended up doing Baton Rouge because I think that it has a much more like, uh, like I don't think it was even a, like a clear central organization of Mardi Gras there. Like it's, there's not as much investment in traditions. The traditions are very new. They're very like post-World War II um, in terms of their development. Um, so I thought Mardi Gras was very important as a Gulf South you know, tradition. Like when we think of where Mardi Gras happens in the US, we really think of the South particularly the Gulf South. Um, so that's kind of why I picked those two kinds of festivals and also those like four cities. We'll get back to the content of the book in a second, but you, at the end of the book, you have this appendix that provides an overview of your methodology. And that's something that I was particularly invested in. Can you talk a bit about this process of studying as you, as you discuss here, ephemeral events and secret societies? Yes. So I, I really have to say I, I kind of flew by the seat of my pants, like just to be honest with research. I really tried to um, be as involved as I could in some of the major LGBTQ run organizations in each city. So I actually was on stage at Corniation and I worked as a stagehand, you know, cause I lived in that city. So it was easier to do that. But at some of the major events in Mobile and Baton Rouge, I would go to all of the pre-events and like all of the more private post-events and I would go help set up for the ball and kind of spend some time going out to dinner with people and whatnot. So I'd really try to kind of be um, as involved as I could in some of the different organizations. 
Um, I also tried to just go to a wide variety of events. Um, I went to every parade that happened when I was in each town. I um, talked to people. I, I watched parades at different vantage points too. Like, what did the parade feel like over by where the gay bar area is in Mobile, as opposed to, you know, in the more like traditional downtown area? I went to attended several um, black carnival events in Mobile. I, you know, I kind of tried to, I could go to everything, but I tried to just really kind of do go to a broad array of events, including ones that were maybe secretly known for having like LGBTQ people in them. And those people weren't visible, right? Like I went to a women's event where someone said, oh, the whole board this year is lesbians, right? And I was like, oh, could I figure that out just by like going, you know? Uh, so I just kind of went and kind of paid attention. Um, so I really tried to spread it around and I tried to go to at least one kind of elite event in each city. So like the major coronation or, you know, something, something like that. Um I also tried to really be careful about my like entry into organizations that were very secretive about their membership. So I would say for the first six or seven months, like I did a whole entire road trip through the Gulf South where I was only focused on getting to know people. So I did some archival research. I did just some like education to myself on like what each of these cities was like. Um, I did no interviews. I just spent time getting to know people. I went to some of their summer events. I went to pool parties. I went and had a beer with a bunch of people from one of the crews. And you know, people came by and like talked to me to kind of figure out if they wanted me to be studying the group. I really tried to very intentionally uh, learn about how Mardi Gras worked. Like I sat down with two of the crew members from the crew of Apollo in Baton Rouge, and they showed me their ball video. And they walked me through what the different parts of the ball were like. And like what it was like for them making the costumes. And it, it was not an interview, right? I did not tape it, but I was there to learn enough to know what kinds of questions to ask. And I think that kind of work on the ground is really important um, so that people can trust you with uh, these really important stories and these important events that are like really um, a big part of their lives. Yeah, it's, that's really important that it, it shows in, in the work, right? Uh, I really enjoyed reading not just that part of the book, but also throughout the book when you share a little bit about your experiences and your interactions with folks. That was uh, really fun to read and, and enlightening. Um, there's an important theme that permeates the book, and that is citizenship. Could you talk a bit about what you discuss here as the cultural aspects of citizenship and the role of celebrations and festivals in that process. So I think that when we first think about citizenship and what it is, we think of like your passport, right? Where you have like legal citizenship. But I use citizenship much more broadly to think of our feeling of belonging and recognition and being valued in the society in which we live. So for a festival like Fiesta San Antonio... Um, if it's described as the festival for everyone, the festival of San Antonio, like then there kind of has to be a place for everyone in the festival. You can't have groups that are shut out of the festival, right? So when I think of LGBTQ people's belonging in the city, it's not just about whether or not you can have your own pride parade 
or whether or not you can have bars in the city or whether or not politicians care about your vote. It's also about whether or not your cultural contributions are valued uh, and they're valued for what they bring that is like different and unique, not for the ways that they conform to what culture already exists in that city. So I think of these festivals as a place where we can really visibly see whether or not LGBT culture and LGBT people's contributions to the city are valued, whether they're recognized, whether they're coveted, whether they're um, visible, you know, during these citywide festivals. Uh, so you just mentioned their pride, and you discuss here that these celebrations are different from pride events. How so? So a pride event is something put on pretty much exclusively by the LGBTQ community, right? It happens during Pride Month, or sometimes it happens like in the fall, because people say like Pride is really it's a hot month, you know, doing it in June. And it's very centered on building LGBTQ community, right? So people can attend Pride, but Pride is not like for them necessarily. Whereas at a citywide festival, the festival is really about the city. You know, it's about, it might be about the city's tourism, it might be about the city's traditions, um, but it's about the city as a whole. And so how LGBTQ people fit into it, um, they do some of the same things that they might do during Pride, like show, having a lot of cultural visibility, right, in terms of like their cultural being visible in the street, like dressing in kind of wacky clothes and you know, being kind of brazen and out there, right? That's something that's very common during Pride as well. But it's not something organized exclusively by LGBTQ people for LGBTQ people. These are events that often are attended by many heterosexual attendees. They are events that often people's mothers and the mayor come to, like, or the mom's bridge club comes to, right? So it's it's has a really different feeling than like a pride parade where it may have a pride parade may have a very explicit political focus in terms of like really advocating for LGBTQ rights. And it also is something kind of made for and by LGBTQ people for that purpose. So you talk here uh, about dispelling misunderstandings about Mardi Gras and carnival in the Gulf, in the U.S. Gulf South. Um, can you tell us uh, what are these some of these misunderstandings and how is your work trying to challenge these uh, narratives? I think that a lot of people think of Mardi Gras the way I did when I first started this project. They think of it as like, oh, there's like a wild and crazy college students like partying in the French Quarter of New Orleans. And people are doing all of these like wild and debaucherous things with each other. And there's kind of no rules. It's like a moral holiday, a sociologist would say. And then a lot of the literature, especially the sociology literature on Mardi Gras, is very focused on these like public, sort of public drunkenness and the public parades. And I think what gets lost in there, uh, it's kind of very focused on the very carnivalesque aspects of carnival, where they're like, oh, I always think of it as the like peasant running around with like a, you know, a crown and like a, a a meatball on a fork as a scepter, you know, this kind of imagery that we have of like, ah, oh, yeah, like the peasants are just running around and being wild. But it really makes invisible all of the organization that makes Mardi Gras happen. And all of the private events that if you live in that city are really central to how you celebrate the event. So if you are someone who's lived in New Orleans for a long time, if your family's from New Orleans, 
You are probably associated with a crew. Someone in your family is. You have probably been to a private ball during Mardi Gras. And at those balls is where a lot of the social connections in the city are made. Like business deals are made through, you know, being involved in crews. And um, social debuts happen. Like debutante culture is deeply embedded in these these balls. But they're very invisible to someone who just kind of visits New Orleans and is like, oh, look, I'm just like walking around the French Quarter. It's just all wild and wacky, right? And you miss the kind of status intensification aspects of Mardi Gras, where it's often people who are already like rich and established in the city who are using it as a moment to like even more deeply network with each other and to, you know, to be the people who are the royalty of the event, you know, and to, to debut their children and, 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 and whatnot, right? To kind of get a lot of appreciation for their culture. And within that, there's a lot of um, segregation around race, right? So these are often exclusively white white um, organizations that host balls that are exclusively white balls, you know? And it's uh, that's also very invisible when you just focus on sort of this like public partying during these festivals. Yeah, your, your book illuminates so many things, I think, about the celebration and uh, I hope folks, yeah, like you said, it will, it will help dispel this, these mis- misunderstandings about Mardi Gras. But on the other hand, you position the Southwestern Fiesta celebration within a history of settler colonialism. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes. Um, I think that, you know, of course, settler colonialism is a part of like the entire U.S., right? But I think sort of narratives and power dynamics around settler colonialism are deeply a part of fiesta celebrations, um, particularly in places like uh, Santa Fe, where, you know, the whole mythology behind the pageantry around how Fiesta Santa Fe started was the um, uh, Don Diego de Vargas kind of reconquest of Santa Fe. And, That reconquest was about, you know, essentially a slaughter of American Indians. Like, it was about decimating indigenous groups that were living in Santa Fe. And that how it was kind of celebrated in the square. This is a celebration that in 2020, they kind of stopped doing. There were so many protests that sort of started just as my field work was wrapping up. And they um, would actually do like a reenactment of it. And they would both be sort of reenacting this, like what they called a peaceful reconquest, right? Which was like not a thing that would actually happened. Um, but it would often pit like Hispano men who were like kind of dressed up like caballeros and like kind of you know, reenacting, literally like coming in on horses and going up on stage and baptizing the year that I went, very confused indigenous children, like pretending to baptize them there on stage. And it was just so blatantly this like reenactment of conquest in San Antonio. It was a little less um, explicit, but the event used to be very centered around the Alamo, right? Which, which is symbolic of settler colonialism in the U S it's about the taking of land, right? From people who lived here. So I feel like that settler colonialism is like an ongoing process, right? It's like, it's not done. It's not complete. And so the way that, 
land and status is used, even within, um, if we look at, for example, one of the oldest events in Fiesta San Antonio, which is the coronation of the queen of the order of the Alamo, um, which is exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) It's this very white Anglo event, which is phenomenal in a city that is like 65% Hispanic, right? Where only like young white Anglo women kind of debut. And instead of kind of integrating that event, right? Instead of saying like, okay, like we're not going to have the most prestigious richest event be like white only instead of saying we're going to integrate this event instead they kind of made parallel structures they made these like parallel contests for hispanic girls and women um but did not include them in this kind of elite event which i think is also about this kind of closure around um kind of whiteness and about land and about status that is part of settler colonialism. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, there are so many parallels, you know, as as you know, between that and Mobile's Mardi Gras and throughout the history of that, because that's the only celebration I, I knew of the four that you studied before reading your book. So I kept going back to that. And also throughout the history and the literature, you just see there's this obsession with celebrating uh, colonizers. That's just fascinating in this you have a chapter here that is entitled The Hottest Ticket in Town is a Gay Ball. And anybody who's been to uh, Mardi Gras in the U.S. at least is aware, well aware of that. And you show how these festivals create some value, respect, acceptance for gay culture. But also, as you, as you put it here, this recognition tends to focus disproportionately on the fabulousness of gay male culture. So what happens uh, with that? Who is left out of uh, this celebration then? On the one hand, it's like the thing that came up in three of the, the, three of the four cities. So, so Santa Fe does not have a big LGBTQ event, right? But in the other three cities, one of the first things that people told me I, when I went to Coronation and went to Order of Osiris in Mobile and then I went to Crew Apollo, one of the first things that people bragged about was like, everybody wants tickets to our event. Right. So everyone who participated got some of the benefit, some of the pleasure, some of the enjoyment of being wanted. Right. Where they're like, I, you know, people want to come see us. We do this really well. Right. So there's this real value in being wanted. We, we talk a lot about tolerance, tolerating certain groups. And tolerance is fine. But I think that there's a certain kind of pleasure in being wanted for like kind of what you can do culturally during these festivals, being coveted, you know? But I think that what what kinds of culture become the most visible and the most easily understood by other participants, by heterosexuals who attend, by people who write about these events in the newspaper, is the culture of gay men, uh, mostly white and um, in San Antonio, I would say also Latino um, gay men's culture. 
And that culture was just kind of the most, it was most clear cut what that culture was, right? We have a very clear idea of what like gay men's culture looks like. We know what a drag queen looks like. We know what um, kind of this over the top, glitter filled, kind of fabulous looks this looks like. And I think that within those events, I keep meaning to write this article on lesbian camp and like lesbian kind of um, culture, because a lot of what we have written about lesbian culture focuses kind of on this like lesbian feminist ethos and style. But I think that there was like some real examples of kind of, you know, queer women's senses of humor and um, kind of funny little like cross-dressing and um, kind of mechanical engineering feats. I was thinking of when I went to Odor Versailles once and they did kind of a to this um butch from lesbian couple did this like sketch around star wars and one of them was princess leia one of them came in on this little they took some kind of vehicle and like rigged it up to look like a cruiser you know and they were um oh gosh now i'm embarrassing because i don't know that much about star wars uh so they were han solo they were dressed up as Han Solo. And so they like zipped in this little car that they had like dressed up, you know, and made look like something else and like rescued, you know, Princess Leia. It was just so cute. Right. And I thought, well, this really, this isn't like campy gay culture. They're not being particularly campy, but I think there is something deeply here about like lesbian culture and particularly some of the like, mechanical transformation of something into something else and the use of kind of more subtle masculine figures right like i don't think she had to dress up a whole lot to become han solo she had like a robe on you know um but it just was so effective and amusing right so i think that there are moments like that that i that i think some of the artistry that women put into these events was just not legible to the people who attended. They had problems kind of pointing it out, right? Um, and, and writing about it and understanding it. And they would just sort of fall back on this, like, oh, it's like about, you know, sophisticated, like artistic gay men. And I honestly think there was also some closure, some social closure from gay men about that, where they would marginalized women designers particularly i saw that in corneation which really kind of only had male designers at first and some of the women who've been involved for years were like rarely recognized as artistic as being their own kind of artistic genius well that's a fascinating project i hope you pursue at some point okay yes yes <laughs> Because I, I absolutely understand what you're saying. Uh, even you know, in organizations that women were there from the beginning, it's the the fabulousness, the, the craft, the everything is is credited to the the men, and you know this gay camp aesthetic and all that. So. But to also uh, talk here about these, well, these uh, th this hottest ticket in town, of course, we're talking about big events that are open to everybody. Some of them have a majority almost of uh, non-queer uh, folks who attend. But you also talk here about other LGBTQ events that are intentionally small and as a, a means to foster community. Could you give us an example of that? Yes, my two favorite events that did that 
are the Fiesta San Antonio Hat Party, which is like an unofficial fiesta that is like not on the fiesta schedule. You have to be invited. You have to wear a hat. I've heard that the new tradition is if you don't wear a huge homemade hat that's like extravagant, they'll give you a cone on your hat and you have to wear the cone of shame, uh, which I think that's pretty funny and might be worth doing. Um, so this is like in someone's backyard, like it's someone's father's backyard, actually. <laughs> and he's been approached to make it a more official event. And he was like, no, thanks. Like, I want, I like to have control over who comes. Like, I like it to be small and personal, right? I think he liked that it was like mostly gay men. Um, and I think there's a real value in that, right? That it was kind of about making a certain kind of community, a certain kind of gay tradition around extravagant hats like i used to tease some of them and say how many pounds of like hot glue gun you know did you use on that uh it's super fun the other excellent example is the mystic women of color event in uh mobile which if you look at lists of um lgbtq crews or festival groups mystic women of color is not usually on them in mobile they're very quiet group uh they keep to themselves in many ways. It took me a while to find them and to get to know them. And then to, to go to the event. Um, it was one of the last fieldwork events I went to before my funding ran out and my time ran out. And it was also, I think, the best party I've ever been to in my entire life. It was just so much fun. Um, but the, the ball is about 300 people. And I would say 292 of them are Black, lesbian, bisexual, and queer women. And that's what they want the ball to be, right? So if you start letting all these other people know that the event's happening, then you also kind of get those people coming in. And so for these women, it really felt like after spending a whole weekend with them, different parties, and we had like a brunch afterwards, like I I felt very well fed and and, um, alcoholic beveraged by the end of the weekend. It really felt like it was about creating a community of Black lesbian women from all across the South. And for everyone to get to know each other and to have just like this joy and appreciation of their own culture, someone described it for me at the ball as this is our prom. You know, there are even like prom like pictures being taken. This is our prom. This is a prom for us. And I think there's something delightful about having it be an event just for you, too that it's helping create a certain kind of community and getting to create that community outside the the white gaze that might attend. And I'm saying that with awareness of the fact that I'm a white person who attended, but I tried very, very hard to not be um, annoyingly obtrusive, right? To kind of fit into um, the event as much as I could culturally. So I, I think that there's real delight there in getting to use this as an opportunity to make community in a particular way. So before um, our final question, it was going to be about your new, your new, what are you working on next, your new projects. But I just wanted to, before we go, uh, there's a concept here that I found really interesting. Uh, could you talk about this idea of glass closets in traditionalistic festivals? Yes. Um, so uh, somebody else came up with the concept of the glass closet, but one thing that I really noticed when I talked to people about LGBTQ involvement in in more elite events. So like the major royalty, like the very, very fancy festival organizations that are usually like all white or all Hispano in New Mexico, or um, or kind of like the 
real important social cultural elites in town. So many people told me about individuals, particularly men, particularly gay men, who were, everyone kind of knew they were gay, but they were often married or people didn't talk about it, right? So this notion that everyone kind of knew you were, but you couldn't be really visible and open about it. Uh, was something that just kind of kept coming up over and over again. And so I tried to intentionally talk to people about that, which was tricky. I interviewed the wife of someone who was rumored to be like that. Um, I interviewed someone who was very openly gay in those circles, in those same elite circles. And they talked to me about their reception that they got for being so openly gay um, as someone who was from this really elite background. And um, I also just kind of happened upon some folks like that. So I was going to a lunch interview with somebody from one of the LGBT crews in um, Mobile, who had been part of the crew for a long time. And he said, oh, can I bring this really old friend that I have? Um, and he brought this person who was, I think, probably in their late 70s, early 80s. And they brought all of this ephemera from an all-men's organization that is well-known in Mobile that they helped found after World War II and that their children had been in it and their... And as I was talking to them, they also told me this other history of having a partner that they took to Osiris and that they cross-dressed there. And then when that person, their special friend, you know, died, they stopped going to Osiris. And also Osiris is one of the, the gay balls in Mobile. So it, I kind of, I met some of those folks too. And so I started to really think about both kind of how that glass closet or why that glass closet operates, right? If everyone kind of knows you're gay, like, why would it be a big deal? You know, often it was about masculinity, right? So this was policing of elite men's masculinity with the assumption that like, if you are openly gay, then you also must be feminine in some way. That came up a lot. So that was one piece of it. And the other piece is that there were like penalties for men who were openly gay, Right, they were not included in the same way as um, other people were. So this glass closet. So staying in the glass closet. So being like, I clearly you can see and you can see that I'm here, but I have to stay in the closet. You know, is one way of thinking about kind of the complexities of elite culture and festivals and the way LGBT people kind of fit into that. Yes, uh, that that's something I encountered as well. So it was great reading about that, uh, you know, through your uh, perspective and your research. So that was wonderful. Um, tell us what are you working on next? What are you working on now? What have you worked on since uh, writing this book? So I took a real a real turn. I'm often a very opportune researcher. And I was invited to be part of a grant on like LGBTQ resilience in San Antonio and South Texas, this like community-based research project. And I got that grant just as I was finishing my research for this book. And I uh, was working on it again for three years with the Pride Center in San Antonio and the director of the Pride Center, um, Robert Salcedo Jr. And we did all this like amazing interview and survey work about family and community and health in Texas. So I got very deeply involved in that project. And in the middle of it, uh, it was fun because it was a lot of like kind of community-based 
final products. So we did like a community report that's online. It's like nicely laid out. We did all these other things related to it as well. And in the middle of it, I started to think a lot about family and youth and housing and particularly about my own extended family and kind of the importance of having supportive grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins. And I thought a little bit about my uh, non-binary nibbling, my brother's child, who ended up being kicked out for a period of time and lived with my parents instead for a year. And I thought, well, what what if they didn't have my parents, right? Where would they have gone? Um, like, what would they have done? So I, I applied for a couple of different grants for a project on that. And I, and I just got one last December. I just got a National Science Foundation grant. So I just started up this whole new project called Family Housing in Me, which is a longitudinal study. We're going to follow 16 to 19 year old LGBTQ youth in South Texas and also in the Inland Empire. My friend and colleague Brandon Robinson is, is joining us from UC Riverside. So we're going to follow them over the course of three years to understand kind of what impact having people other than parents in your family who are supportive, having that like broader network of relatives, how much does that affect the housing stability of LGBTQ youth? So it's a much more serious project. It's like not at all like festivals, but I think at the center of like all the things I'm interested in is like belonging and like your, your place kind of where you live and how that impacts your everyday experience. You know? Well, congrats on the grant and uh, on this important project. I look forward to reading anything that comes out of it and uh, I wish you the best of luck with it. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Amy. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I just spoke with Dr. Amy L. Stone about their new book, Queer Carnival Festivals on Mardi Gras in the South, published by NYU Press in 2022. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time. <laughs>